0: We light the first candle for hope. The prophecy candle reminds us all the years that people waited for the coming Messiah and longed for God's kingdom to be established. That same thrill of hope now encourages us as we await his return. The prophet Isaiah expressed this hope when he said,
1: For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice
0: and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7.
1: Let us pray. We pray that all the world will come to experience your love as seen in Christ. Help us to live as instruments of your hope and to spread your truth of others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Psalm 95. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praises. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are his people of his pasture, the sheep of his hands. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as Meribah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your father put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The word of the Lord.
0: Thank you so much for being here today for this first Sunday of the Advent season. As Brian noted at the beginning of the service, the word Advent comes from a Latin word meaning to come. And the Advent season begins traditionally four weeks prior to Christmas Eve when churches, Christian churches, have celebrated the coming of Jesus into the earth, the incarnation. The Advent season is a bit shorter than usual this year because the fourth Sunday is also Christmas Eve. This Advent season, we're talking about worship, what it means to worship the King, to worship Jesus Christ. And we're going to look particularly at the Gospel of Matthew. If you're not accustomed to reading the Bible, this would be a great month to start. If you wanted to start reading the Gospel of Matthew today, and read one chapter a day during the month of December, I think you would finish it on the last day of December. So I'd encourage you to do that if you're not accustomed to reading the Bible daily already. The Gospel of Matthew has been called the most Jewish of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because it presents so clearly Jesus as the Messiah, the King of the Jews, the King of Israel. The Gospel of Matthew is the longest of the four Gospels, and it also includes more Old Testament references than the other three, Mark, Luke, and John, roughly 40 quotations uh, from or references to the Old Testament in the Gospel of Matthew. Sixteen times in the Gospel of Matthew, we find something presented, that's something Matthew's recorded, and then words like this. This was done so that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. And so the Gospel of Matthew is beautifully tying together for us the uh, revelation of God in Old and New Testament, showing that they are a unified whole with the centerpiece being Jesus, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the one who fulfills the prophecies given us in the Old Testament. And so we'll look at the Gospel of Matthew this month, and uh, particularly at the places in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus is said to have been worshipped. Now the passage we're going to look at this morning gives us the first place in Matthew, the first place in the New Testament, where his disciples are said to worship him. It comes from Matthew chapter 14, and the setting of the passage is this. Jesus has just multiplied food for a great multitude of people. He'd been teaching in a remote area. There were thousands of people gathered. The day was growing late. His disciples said, Lord, send the people away into the villages to get food for the hour is late. Jesus said, we don't need to send them away. You give them something to eat. And the disciples said, we, We've only got five loaves of bread and two little fish. He said, Bring them to me. And he blessed the food, and then he began giving it to his 12 disciples to distribute amongst thousands of people. And so after they were all fed and satisfied, they took up 12 full baskets, one for each of the disciples. Jesus then dismissed the crowd and sent his disciples to the other side of the great lake several miles across while he went up to a mountain to pray alone. And that's where we pick up in Luke chapter 14 and verse 22. You'll see the words on the screen. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land. Commentators suggest they're probably three or or four miles from the shore. Beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. The fact that Jesus Christ was worshiped is extraordinarily important. It has huge implications for the message we call the gospel and for our understanding of what was really accomplished in his crucifixion, in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Because if Jesus was worshipped, it shows us that he was and is God. The Bible makes three things very clear. One is that only God is to be worshipped ever. Early in Jesus' ministry, he was led out into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan. And the devil took him up to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, all these I'll give to you if you fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Jesus is quoting a verse here from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. Every good Jewish person knew this well, that God, only God, was ever to be worshipped. There's a case in the the book of Acts, an instance where Paul and Barnabas did an extraordinary miracle, and the people gathered around them and started saying, the gods have come down from heaven, and they tried to worship them. Paul and Barnabas were were shocked. They tore their clothes in in disgust and and said, no, we're, we're mere men. You only worship God. The last chapter of the New Testament is the book of Revelation, chapter 22. And there the apostle John, who's getting this great revelation. He sees this glorious angel, so glorious, John falls down to worship him. And the angel says, do not do that. He said, I'm just a servant like you and the others who keep God's word. Worship God. God and only God is ever to be worshiped. Yet Jesus was worshipped. So we see in these passages on the screen. In fact, Jesus was first worshipped by the wise men. We call them the wise men, the magi. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 2 that the magi, uh, those who came from the east to follow the star went into the house where they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. These leaders, whoever they were, these magi from the east, fell down and worshipped a baby. And then they opened their treasures and gave him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Then the next verse you see is from Matthew 14, verse 33, where his own disciples are first said, to worship Him. There are other cases in the Gospel of Matthew, but let's advance to the last chapter of Matthew. After His resurrection, Mary uh, Magdalene and the other Mary uh, came and found the empty tomb. And they saw the tomb empty. They ran with great joy and fear to tell His disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said greetings. And they came up, and what did they do? They fell down. They bowed before Him. They took hold of His feet and they worshipped him. They told his 11 disciples. When they saw Jesus, what did they do? They worshipped him. And the Bible, with its typical honesty, tells us that some of them doubted. The disciples seemed to be a little slower to believe than uh, another number of other folks who followed Jesus. Only God is to be worshipped. Jesus was worshipped. And so we can conclude clearly Jesus is God. Over the years, my wife Beth and I have had a number of uh, people stop by our house and and ring the doorbell and ask to talk to us and give us literature because we live not too far from the kingdom hall of the, the Jehovah's Witnesses right up the road. And sometimes my wife will say, yeah, I see a car down the road. I see a couple people walking. They've got stuff under their arms. I think it's some Jehovah's Witnesses. And for some reason, different people keep coming by our, our house. So I've had a number of opportunities to talk with these, these nice folks that come to our door. And we inevitably talk about this fact of the deity of Jesus Christ. And uh, they'll say, well, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. I'll say that's, that's right, it's not in the Bible, but the teaching about the deity of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is everywhere in the Bible, and so I'll often raise this, this question, every good Jewish person knew only God was to be worshipped, if Jesus was not God, why did he allow himself to be worshipped? And he had not only allowed others to worship him, he encouraged it. When the religious people saw Jesus being worshipped, they said, rebuke your disciples. And he said, if they don't worship me, the very rocks will cry out. I've never had any one of them be able to explain why, if Jesus were not God, he allowed himself to be worshipped. Now the implications of this for what he did on the cross are huge. Because if Jesus were a mere human being, or an elevated creation, or an angel of some type, his his death on the cross, his bearing of our judgment, would not have atoned for all human beings who would put their faith in him for all time. But if Jesus were God, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, if God himself was taking the responsibility to himself bear the judgment for our sin in order to bring us to himself eternally as his adopted children. If God did that for you and me because of his great love, well, that's a different matter entirely. And that is what the Bible teaches that Jesus has done for us. Jesus' own followers seemed to to grow in their faith and understanding of who he was gradually. And our passage in Matthew today teaches us, I think, something about the importance of having faith in him if we are to worship him. And again, it follows the feeding of the multitude, where Jesus demonstrated his power over created things, also his ability to do what his disciples could not do. And then he, he walks on the water as they're uh, in the middle of this storm on this great lake. And I think it teaches us that faith in Jesus Christ includes, number one, a correct understanding of who he is. I think the disciples were coming to this somewhat gradually. As Jesus is walking on the water, they're fearful, they thought they saw a, a ghost, Immediately, Jesus speaks to them, saying these words. Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Jesus was saying much more than just, don't worry, it's not a ghost, it's only me. Because when he says, it is I, he uses two simple words in the Greek language. Ego, a me. The the very same two words in the Gospel of John are translated, I am. When Jesus used those words in the Gospel of John, he was talking to religious uh, Jewish leaders. And they wanted to pick up stones and stone him because they realized that he was making a claim to deity. I am was the name that God gave for himself to Moses in the Old Testament. And we find Jesus throughout the Gospels applying this name to himself. Before Abraham was, I am. It seems to be what he's doing here. So that one New Testament scholar says this is perhaps Jesus' clearest self-revelation of his divinity to date. Jesus is showing himself to be the one with authority with power over the created order, the great I am. You know, Jesus had a purpose in every miracle that he did. He's showing who he is, demonstrating not only his compassion by feeding the multitudes, but demonstrating his power over the created order to do what his disciples could not do. Faith in Jesus includes further, trust in his word, is truth. And the disciples gradually seemed to be coming to this reality. When Jesus walked on the water, Peter said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said simply, come. So Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, came to Jesus. Peter begins to walk, and again... Uh, The Bible says they were a long way. Uh, Commentators uh, take that Greek language there. It it says many stadia. A stadium is about 600 feet. So many distances of 600 feet. Uh, Commentators say they were three or four miles probably from the shore. Uh, Waves beating against the boat. uh, Water churning, wind blowing. Peter gets out of the boat and begins to walk. Jesus never said to him, Peter, if you just have enough faith, you can walk just like I do. He only said, come. And When Peter sees the wind and the waves, he begins to sink, and we see a third reality, that faith in Jesus includes commitment of oneself to him. And so Peter gets out of the boat, walks on the water, comes to Jesus, but when he sees the wind, he's afraid, he begins to sink, he cries out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When Peter said, Lord, save me, I think he spoke three of the most important words that he ever, ever said. Because it was in that moment that Peter knew that Jesus and Jesus alone could save him. Jesus called Peter a person of little faith, he wasn't a person of no faith. Jesus often had uh, controversy with people who were faithless and unbelieving. The beautiful thing to me though is that Jesus doesn't reject the person of little faith. He brings us along. He doesn't crush, reject, or condemn the weak in faith, but he lets us understand That only He can save us. Sometimes God permits things to come into our lives that cause us to recognize that we cannot fix things in our own power. We can't make things right in our own strength. We can't save ourselves. And we are entirely dependent upon Him to save us. The core heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we are not able to do anything to gain our acceptance with God, our eternal salvation, but Jesus Christ can and Jesus Christ has. The great preacher, uh, Charles Spurgeon, said something about these words of Peter when he said, Lord, save me. He wrote this, and it it may be uh, a, a little hard to understand why he would say this, but he said, Peter was nearer his Lord when he was sinking than when he was walking. Now, what did he mean by that? I think he meant Peter recognized as he was sinking that Jesus and only Jesus could ever save him. As I've talked to people about their life of faith over the years, people have often shared with me that the time they grew to know God best and love Him most and grew to trust Him more was during a time of of crisis when they were sinking in some way, facing something they couldn't resolve on their own. They turned to God and they found he He was more than enough. He was more than faithful to bring them to himself. And I think that's what the great preacher Charles Spurgeon meant when he said Peter was near his Lord when he was sinking and when he was walking. Faith in Jesus is not about getting your life in order, cleaning up your life, resolving to do better, to work harder, to fix things on your own. But it's about recognizing that, as the the song goes, nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. Jesus alone did it all for me. That's why God left heaven, became a baby, and gave his life on the cross for us to bring us to himself to save us. You and I can no more save ourselves from our sins than we can walk on water. But Jesus has done that for us. And his disciples, seeing what's happening in the boat, worship him, showing us that genuine faith in Jesus is ultimately expressed in worship. They said, truly you are the Son of God. And again, this is the first time I believe, not the first time Jesus is worshipped because he was worshipped by others, but the first time we see his disciples worshipping him. And I think it leads us to, to ask ourselves two or three questions. Number one, is my faith in Jesus based on a clear understanding of who he is? Gradually, hearing his teaching, seeing his miracles, his disciples were coming to this understanding. The Bible makes it clear that Jesus is more than a good leader, more than a good teacher, more than a great religious figure or a prophet. He was and is God, the second person of the Trinity. If you have questions about the Trinity, what it means for Jesus to be God, we have a little booklet called Understanding the Trinity at our Resource Center. They're free, you can take one today. It's a critically important thing to understand about the teaching of the Bible, that Jesus was not a mere human being. He was fully human, but he was also fully divine. Secondly, is my faith in him resulting in my following him? Biblical faith is based on a clear understanding of who he is, and it leads us to become his followers, to turn from our sin and our own control of our lives to following him. And then thirdly, how is my faith being expressed in worship? In the Gospel of Matthew, it seems like most of the places where people worship Jesus, they had come to some grasp of who he is, and often they bowed down, they knelt down. Um, There are many more expressions of worship, though, given us in the Bible. You may wonder why. Uh, We had a psalm read earlier in the service. Uh, Abby, uh, one of our our fellows here uh, this year on our staff, read from Psalm 95. And you may be wondering, what in the world does that have to do with Advent or Christmas or anything like that? It's a psalm of worship. And um, it teaches us some of the appropriate expressions of worship. Worship. And so I'd like to look at those just a moment before we close. Expressions of worship we see there in Psalm 95. The first is singing and joyful noise. Some of you may say, well, that's what my singing sounds like, joyful noise. Well, those two words are translated shouting in many versions of the Bible, singing and shouting. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Do you know that singing is mentioned in the Bible roughly 400 times? 50 times it is spoken as a direct command. We're supposed to sing to God. Believers, Christians, even those of us, like me, who aren't gifted in singing, we're called to sing to God. In the contemporary Christian church, there's a there's a real trend for people to become observers uh, rather than participants who are are singing. It's a it's a trend in many, many contemporary churches. People write much about that. I think one of the things we have to, to grasp about worship services is this. Number one, God is the audience. When it comes to corporate gathered worship, God is the audience. The congregation, all of you, all of us, is the choir. The people on the stage, these gifted folks leading us, they're the facilitators, helping direct our attention to God. God is the audience. We're the choir. All of us. People on the stage, they're facilitators of worship, helping us to focus our attention on Him. And singing is is an important part of it, probably the most common expression of worship in the Bible. But there are many other expressions of worship. Another is thanksgiving. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Enter His gates, the Bible says elsewhere, with thanksgiving thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is an expression of worship. As our hearts are filled with an awareness of the reality of who Jesus is and what He's done for us, it leads to a life of gratitude and thanksgiving. Thirdly, a third expression of worship is bowing down. Oh, come let us worship and bow down as the magi, the wise men did uh, when they first came to the, the baby Jesus. They bowed down as the women did when Christ appeared to them near the empty tomb. They bowed down, they knelt down, they worshipped him. It's an acknowledgement of who he is. But a fourth expression of worship, and one we probably don't think about often is worship, is obedience, obeying the Lord. Psalm 95, the psalm of worship says, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Very important expression of worship is when God shows you something in your heart that needs to change in the way of an attitude, in the way of resentment toward another person, some disobedience, something about which he brings his beautiful convicting work that makes us uncomfortable. The Bible says when you hear his voice, do not harden your heart when he shows us something in his word and we know it applies to us, don't harden your heart. It's a call to obedience as an expression of worship. Yieldedness, humility, meekness before the authority of God and his word that leads us to obey him. Singing, thanksgiving, bowing down, obeying him. As we enter the Advent season, there's really no greater gift that you and I can give to God than our wholehearted worship, singing and thanksgiving and bowing down and many of the other expressions of worship, but also, importantly, obedience, hearing His voice, not hardening our hearts. Let's pray about that this morning as we prepare to close. Father, we ask that you teach us to trust you. We ask for the work of the Holy Spirit among us to draw us to worship you, to have a greater understanding of who you are and of what you've done for us. Jesus, how we thank you for giving your life on the cross. For bearing our judgment, that we could in turn be credited with your own righteousness, be adopted into your family, and call the Father God, our Father who art in heaven. We thank you for that. Draw us closer to you this Advent season, we pray. In the holy name of Jesus, amen.